It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I've got a really enjoyable task this afternoon. I'm going to be talking to someone who I've not known for very long, personally. I've known through angling for a while, but someone who I already admire a great deal. And um, for several reasons. Uh, One, he does a job that I wouldn't like to do, but wish I had the ability to do. But more of that later. Secondly, because he's a damn fine angler and catches fish of every kind, I think. We'll find out a bit more in a minute. But he catches fish of every kind, as far as I know, and enjoys doing so. And and that, for me, is the vital part of angling. So uh, welcome to the strange boat, Jamie Cook. Thanks, Keith. That's very kind of you. Well, it's all right. You didn't know any of that before I just said it, did you? You didn't know you. I was a fan. Absolutely not. And Keith, something you may not be aware of um, is that I first met you, I think, in 1997 at Great Linford Lakes at the Junior Angling Masters. Do you remember those? I do remember those. Yeah, I, I covered them with uh, with lovely Jackie Bell Trow, who isn't very well at the moment on Sky Sports, and Amanda Nemeth was the producer, and we had um, we had a fantastic time there, no doubt about it. Uh, I remember eating KFC, sitting by the Great Ooze, waiting for Steve Ball to catch um, a barbel at about eleven thirty at night, having started at five thirty in the morning. We did Junior Masters as well, and it was yeah, it was it was great. Well, I, I didn't know that. Fantastic. I was in the so, junior one at that point, Keith, and I yeah. um yeah I finished second in the I think it was ninety seven or ninety eight. I finished second, and I didn't do as well as Steve because I set out to try and catch a barbel, failed dismally, and then had to play catch up. Uh, was that the one that Ben O'Connor won? Yeah, that's the one. He caught a barbel in about the first ten minutes, I think. So um so yeah, Ben uh, Ben streaked ahead and uh, and thrashed everyone, but I was um best of the rest that year, which was nice. Excellent. I had to stretch the old memory to think of that, I'll tell you. Um, so, so that was the Junior Masters. When and where did the angling bug strike you? Um, it was probably ingrained in me before I was born, Keith. Um, my my dad absolutely loved his fishing and uh, and used to fish with my mum. Um, and there are photos of me as a child. My dad kept fishing diaries, which um, he, he sadly passed away when I was 14, um, the year of the Junior Masters, actually. And so it's a really nice memento to be able to look back at and 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 see photos of myself in a pushchair with barbel or carp or tench or bream being held in front of me. And, <laughs> and, and yeah, so I, I fish my whole life. I, I can't ever remember a time when I haven't fished. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, and who, who, obviously, your father was a great inspiration to your fishing uh, and and he he must have inspired you to do all sorts of things when you started going on your own so when would that have been roughly so i fished him so i fished with my dad growing up and yeah I, I was i mean he really sacrificed his fishing for me as well as you see through these diaries and um in times when he could have fished and caught a lot more you could see him bringing me into the sport and giving me that 
that support that we all need as as newcomers because it's not that easy to to take up fishing and to fish successfully. So I fished then. I think when I started, I didn't really fish that much without him until he sadly passed away. I had a good friend at school who got into fishing and we had a few trips on the River Loddon um, just outside of Reading near where he lived and caught some barbel and chub. But on the evenings while I went with him, my dad had gone to Kennet and catch fish twice the size. So I was always quite tempted to uh, to fish with my dad, to be honest. Yeah, that, that's that's remarkable. I mean, I, I'm obviously I'm a generation, at least a generation ahead of you. And uh, my lot I had to do it all on our own as a baby boomer. Uh, that, luckily, there were lots of us all thrust together at the same time. And we all sort of took to fishing. And, and most of my mates who went fishing then who are still with us still go in, in different stages and different categories. But uh, it, it, it's um, to, to have a father that did it. I, the only person in my family that did it, I think I've mentioned this before, was my late grandmother's father, who was called Grandpa Rocky. And they lived in Plymouth. And he was a caretaker on um, Plymouth Dockyard and was always trying to catch big conger eels on huge hand lines down the edge. And my grandmother was very um, fond of regaling me with the tale of one he bought home and put in the garden shed and it barked like a dog. I've never heard a conger bark like a dog, but I've heard it made some strange noises, but never in a garden shed. So, uh, yeah, that, that's my only... He um, was, wasn't really my inspiration in fishing because I didn't learn about it until many years afterwards, but uh, it had been better to have my dad take me. But there you go. Um, what fish species have you targeted at different time during your angling career? I mean, you mentioned barbel and chub quite early on in the scene, and I probably caught the first barbel and chub probably at 14 or 15 on what's now Fisher's Green on the River Lee. Um, but I took the left-hand path, if you like, and, and, and turned into more or less a match angler. What, what, was, what, what did you like to catch, first of all? So growing up where I did, Keith, and... and- again, fishing with my dad, and I probably was catapulted then. So that those formative years where I was learning, I'd be learning on the, the Kennet to, to trot a stick float um, or to fish a swim feeder, fish hemp and castor, or fish maggots and, and catch all manner of fish. So it, it just general course pleasure fishing. And of course, we had the close season at that point as well. So you'd always start June the 16th would be on one of the local gravel pits and and it's come full circle really because those same pits that I fished as a child growing up I then later in life went back and specimen fished so it's been quite a nice journey for me but yeah that what I guess I I moved fairly quickly into catching what what would be deemed as not huge specimen fish but fishing the rivers for for barbel and chub and my biggest love is river roach I absolutely love fishing for roach um so those in the in the summer through into the winter in the in the at the start of the season you'd fish the gravel pits for for tench and bream the only way i targeted carp was fishing floating crust in the in the reeds which was absolutely brilliant is how i i caught my first of those and then from my perspective i my family lived on or my mum was from and my dad had lived on the Isle of Wight as children. So um, we used to go over there and see the grandparents. So my first sea fishing experience were sort of off piers catching place, but I can't say I was particularly skillful at it. Um, so, yeah, that, that's really how I started. And then um, then progressing through, as I got that bit older, I, I got caught by the specimen bug. I did have a, a small dalliance with match fishing but i i just didn't have the discipline for it i would i wanted to catch bigger fish rather than lots of fish more so mm. um and so i i was growing up sort of the tail end of that real those real halcyon days on the hampshire avon for the big roach and and so being around sort of guys like like dave howes and eddie goodridge on the river catching enormous roach and and seeing some of those as i grew up i was exposed to that at a quite young age so mm. Roach and barbel fishing on the Hampshire Avon became the sort of the norm every weekend, right the way through from after we'd finished on the gravel pits fishing for tension bream through to to March the fourteenth. It, it's strange you mentioned the Kennet. Well, not that strange because you live there, but but I know our mutual friend Martin Salter actually bought a house on the Kennet because he enjoyed the roach fishing there so much. And, and when you started, was it in the days? And I remember going to the Kennet probably. Yeah, it would have been before you were born. And you could stand by the, the road bridge on the old jam factory stretch, wave your hand 
and roach would come up because they thought you might possibly be throwing in hemp seed and, and they'd boil on the surface. They weren't easy to catch. Um, there was a method of catching them, but that's another story. But they, they the Kennet then was filled in some stretches with roach and lots and lots and lots of very small barbel. Um, Dick Walker was very small. Dick Walker was quoted many years ago saying he, he never expected the, uh, the Kennet to produce a double-figure barbel because there were too many of them and the numbers declined and the size increased and now we are where we are. And I think they're starting to come back a little bit now, actually. But, but was it in those days when you could see the roach boiling on the Kennet or did you miss out on that? I missed out on that. So only very occasionally. So that that area that you talk about where the Holybrook joins the Kennet, yep. at certain times a year, you could see the roach and it was black with them, yep. or black and red. Um, and at certain times a year, and, and that's been really nice knowledge because as as Dell at Redden and District has, um, has picked up the mantle from the Avon Roach projects and what the guys have done so superbly there and put something into place for the Kennet. So I think some of those old historical areas where, where the, the guys of your generation and, and my dad's generation who knew the river well um, have given a bit of that knowledge of, of where they used to see the roach and Dell's been able to find them there, which is interesting seeing as that it's not clear that that lineage would have stuck, but they still frequent the same places. Now, for me, Keith, it was, um, it was those, what for me at the time weren't smaller barbel, but those barbel in the kind of two to five pound bracket, um, which I grew up catching, um, so you had lots of barbel in the river and and yeah, they I saw them progress on. So I remember just before going to university, I had a season um, where I was I was working three different jobs to try and save money. But I was fishing a stretch um, not too far upstream from from the jam factory stretch. And on that season, I think I had 29 double figure barbel. Um, or different double figure barbel and you could sense at that point I think after September the the biggest the smallest one I caught was 914 and you just you had the sense at that point that there weren't as many smaller backup fish coming through to for whatever reason I think there's a, a myriad of reasons for it that, that they hadn't they didn't have that some um, that next generation coming through to follow them so yeah I, I was very lucky to to see that period and have that period um and actually as onto the next stage of my fishing i mean the fact that when i went to university and this might sound sad but one of the photos i had on my wall was of a almost 15 pound barbel from the kennet actually took my fishing in a completely different direction so when a uh, a friend of mine from halls wandered into my room um one day and we're having a chat he looked at the wall and said oh my mate from school fishes um i should introduce you and when he introduced me um I wasn't sure what to expect, and uh, and the guy introduced me to um, went to Canford School and uh, and had fished on the Dorset Stour at Canford and um, turned into one of my best friends. Uh, was best man at my wedding, and uh, he was the guy who convinced me, arm twisted behind my back, to um, to give carp fishing a go. And uh, and after a decade of doing that in um, in sort of my younger professional years alongside work, I um I had an absolutely fantastic time, and I'm not sure I'd have taken that path. Uh, without that chance meeting so uh yeah that that photo um that i decided to take to university with me um served me in good stead in that respect yeah that's that's an amazing story that isn't it? to go from jump from 15 pound barbel to to quite a long time 10 years specializing in carp it, it's it's ironic what you say about the kennet because I, I i made a film on it would have been what year would it have been about 92 maybe 91 um, with Archie Braddock of, of um, smelly bait fame from, from yeah. Nottinghamshire. And we fished on the Benyons. And uh, Archie had one barbel. He specialised in fish for barbel. And I fished match style. And I had two or three barbel. I had one nice one, a nine pounder. And, and we hadn't quite finished the film. So we went back the following day to finish it off. There'd been a huge thunderstorm in Hungerford the night before. The river had come up and gone dirty. And a bit of river we could literally have waded across the day before looked like it was fishable. And I had 17 barbel of under a pound and never saw a smaller one and loads of dace and I'd never caught the day before. And 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 where those barbel went to, I have no idea, but there were loads. I, I just couldn't stop catching them. And we wanted a photo of like a five or six pounder. I couldn't catch one of those. I caught a couple of two pounders, but they were all 17 of them between sort of a pound and, and, and two pound. But 
the the bad part about that same film is a couple of years after that, I was doing a, a different kind of column with the Angling Times where I went out and, and um, I just fished and, and Kevin, the late Kevin Green was, was the editor, my editor at the time. He did my copy and he took me and Bob Nudd to the, the Benyons, the Upper Benyons, and Bob fished the swim rod, caught all these fish a couple of years before I'd had two or three perch over a pound. I'd had pound plus roach a few days, this big barbel and a smaller one. And Bob fished this swim with maggot and match style uh, and my job was to try and catch fish why they chose me i've no idea on specimen type tactics so all i had was boilers and pellets and i had three chub and two barbel on boilers and pellets nice fish the, the chub was sort of three to four pound and the barbel were five six pound that kind of size and bob nudd never had a bite he fished maggots couldn't even catch a little perch or a minnow and and that struck me then that the river was in decline because it wasn't in bad condition. It was in decline and, and the general school of thought, it was the introduction of the, the boats all the way through the Kennet and Avon Canal from Bath to Reading um, that, that created the situation where fish couldn't reproduce because they'd been used to re- reproducing on this beautiful pristine gravel and ranunculus and et cetera, et cetera, and fontanalis in the case of the roach. And that stuff disappeared when, when the water became opaque, when the colour came in from the canal. Do, do you subscribe to that theory? I think it's definitely a contributing factor, yes, Keith. I mean, I said the rivers changed so much in in the period that, that I lived in Reading, and and I haven't lived in Reading for almost 20 years now, but I, I remember the river, as you describe it, a thick with ranunculus and gin clear, and, and you could wade across stretches and then looking at, at swims at, at Benyon's, um, and walking that whole stretch as I have many times, it's a very, very different river. So yeah, I think it has had a significant impact. And and we see with lots of things that 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 they're cyclic, aren't they? That, yes. that rivers go in cycles, and 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 external pressure comes in um, that that really knocks the fishing and knocks certain species harder than others. And then nature finds a way. And mm. the, and it it reestablishes itself, and the the equilibrium comes back in a slightly different way. As you said, I mean, you wouldn't have questioned Dick Walker's uh, judgment when he said the Kennet will never produce a double figure barbel, and you have points where it's harder to catch one over the last fifteen years. There've been points where it's harder to catch one below ten pounds and over ten. Exactly. Um, so, I, I think it's it's incumbent upon us to try and protect those environments and ensure they're they're well looked after and maintained and put pressure on those to those in in authority who've got the responsibility to do that but ultimately there, there's that aspect that we're always going to get external factors that are going to impact our fishing we have to fight and fight for fish and fishing and and the fishing that we love but we've i think there's also value in us as anglers being adaptable and and looking at other genres of the sport and styles of the sport and trying different things because because you never know when when the next change is around the corner and I'm sure you've seen uh, more than I have of those over different rivers and, and different lakes and different landscapes over over the last couple of generations. Well, I, I can think back to the bad old days that, that everybody seems to think were shining times back in the sixties when I first started match fishing on the Thames, club fishing on the Thames, and we were fishing to size limits. And we were only allowed to keep fishing our keep nets that were over a certain size. And I was fishing with a, a club, a, a match group, basically, with very good anglers. They were all good Thames match anglers. And I, I joined them as a novice and, and developed into a reasonable angler of that type with the old croquil under the rod top. And we fished, there were, there were at least eight of us out every Sunday. And we fished until the new year before we had a thousand goers. So between eight of us fishing... 39 weeks of the year, one year we had 12, uh, the best year while I was there, we had just over 1,200 sizable fish. That's eight times 39 divided, divided into 1,200. We didn't catch many fish. We no. caught very, very few fish in those days, sizable fish. And now, of course, it, it's entirely different. But the evolution is the changes have, have happened in between and some fish have become more prevalent and others have just become well, – almost invisible but you, you mentioned there about fighting for angling and now of course you've got uh, the job um where you're responsible for fighting for angling basically you, you're ceo with the angling trust what made you go for the job I, i'd never been involved in fishing politics at all i'd never been involved in fishing aside from being an angler um 
And I, a, a friend of mine in the trade forwarded me the link to the, the job advert and said, you should do something like this. And I, I wasn't aware that the, the job was being advertised in complete honesty. Um, so I had a look at it. That was on a Friday. It turned around that the applications closed on a Sunday. Um, spoke to my wife about it. We had another discussion the following day. I banged together an application form on the Sunday, um, sent it across, and and the rest history, I guess, to to a large extent. I think the um, Mark Lloyd had, had built an organisation and, and pulled together those um, those different bodies. And what's interesting for me, Keith, is that when I was a student. I studied politics, um, never with a view to going into being a politician. It was never an ambition of mine, but I was interested in sort of modern history. And when you when you looked at most history degrees, it, it was all older history, or the vast majority mm-hmm. of it was. And I was quite interested in contemporary, particularly British and European history. And, and the politics degrees actually covered that quite well. So I did that. And then at the first opportunity you have in your third year, you get to write your dissertation. Um, and so I wrote a, a, I wrote a, a, gov- a review of the governance of angling in the UK. I wrote my, uh, my dissertation on that subject. And I didn't have as many references as lots of people did. I did quite a few interviews with, um, with people who were involved in, in angling governance through the NFA and many other bodies at the time. And, and yes, so, so I, in a way, I've been on this, this agenda a long time. And at the time, I, I advocated a, a single voice to represent angling properly um, and to represent anglers of all denominations. And it's quite humbling that, that going through the process I did, and it was a, a particularly arduous process to go through with lots of rounds and lots of different areas and, and points of presentation to, to boards and things like that, that, um, that, that I end up in this seat. So, um, so yeah, I'm really proud of it. And I, there are aspects of it that they're incredibly hard work, but the opportunity to represent something you absolutely love and something that really matters. I mean, someone, when I finished university, I ran the charity at our university, Keith. Mm-hmm. And I thought when I finished university, I'd go off and go into the third sector and go and work for a charity. And someone said to me, it, it was it was someone quite senior in one of the big charities, they said, don't go into a, a charity or an NGO expecting them to develop you as a person. If you really care about what you're doing, go away and get skills that, that they will need and then go back to what you're passionate about when you've developed your skills. Don't ask them to develop you. And that really stuck with me. So I went off and... Um, embarked upon a career that I never intended to again but so many of us fall into what we do but it's nice that 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 sort of 15 years later when this opportunity arose it just arose at probably the right time for me in my career that that I felt I had enough to be able to to do the job justice and I, I hope that pans out accordingly. It seems to be going pretty well so far more of that in a minute what were you doing when you applied for the for the Angling Trust job what was your your then occupation? So I worked for a newswire called Business Insider. So my career has basically been based around business to business, news, engagement, marketing, promotion, um, and publishing an event. So um, so running large-scale events, I, I've done quite a lot in the, the energy, uh, water, renewables, and, and waste industry. Um, did some work in civil engineering and then the past six years before I joined the Angling Trust was I was regionally focused so I was based down in Bristol where I live and covering the southwest and and we'd deliver business news business events business engagement so working with the sort of the big household names that people like your Dyson or Thatcher's or um, Mulberry down here St Austell Brewery um, lots of those uh, some of the big um like Leonardo and Airbus down here and really working with them on their business engagement and and how they work with their their local communities so nothing to do with fishing whatsoever um and I guess from my perspective I was I hope I was quite honest when going in and and meeting the Angling Trust board um because that's one of the things that that's fascinated me since I've joined is some of the preconceived ideas people have got about the Angling Trust and there's a board of 11 um volunteers uh yep. they give up their time for free 
Um, they do it all because all of them are engaged in fishing in some way. They're all incredibly successful professional people, but they're volunteers. And so they were volunteering their time to come in and ask me two and a half hours worth of questions about why uh, why they should appoint me. Um, and fortunately for me, and hopefully fortunately for for the community, they did. And I hope that that I can I can build on the skills that I've developed professionally and and look at how we we employ some of those into the angling world and and all of the different things that the angling trust actually does. That I think it's fair to say, Keith, and I hold my hands up to it. There are so many things that I just wasn't aware of as an angler that the angling trust do. So um, I know this isn't really to talk about the angling trust as much as uh, as get to know me, but from that perspective, yeah, I. I've learned an awful lot over my first six months about what we do. And I think I've got a role to, to help the team to, I guess, disseminate and share that message and share the great work that they do do. Because at times the, the trust's had flack where it sometimes has deserved it, sometimes hasn't deserved it. And, and we just need to, to explain to anglers the work that they do, why they do it or why we do it rather, um, and why it's so important. And I think, in a way for me the the last six months has given a bit more of a shop window that that I've been able to to walk into and and really really start to explain that but there's a lot more work to do one thing that um most anglers most anglers all the anglers I've spoken well not all the anglers because there's always one or two that have different views uh, most of the anglers I've spoken to have been extremely grateful for the fact that angling was able to start during lockdown when no other sport apart from walking, running and riding a bike was allowed, we could go fishing. That must have taken a very clever and very persuasive um, conversation between the Angling Trust and the government. How on earth did you manage to get that allowed? It, there are a few layers to it, Keith, actually. So it's when that initial announcement came out, you first had to interpret the position and what, what the government was saying. And I went straight on to a, I went on to a Zoom call, as, as we've become very accustomed to, with the other um, CEOs of the other 45 national governing bodies um, as appointed by Sport England. So Sport England, through through Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport, work with a series of sports that can promote active lifestyles um, and maintain active habits in individuals across England. So they select or work with a partner in each sport as their their chosen governing body. And the Angling Trust happened to be that for fishing. So we all went on to the call. Unanimously, we, we viewed the fact, well, bar one governing body who saw it slightly differently, um, but changed their mind very quickly afterwards, that the sentiment of what was being asked, and we had the sports minister on this call, so it was very clear, was that, that they wanted the sports sector to support what the government were trying to achieve, which was to to limit the spread of, of COVID-19. And so we, we followed that route. And what we continued to work with as a start point was making sure that anglers were safe. We didn't want a single angler to to be infected on the basis that it's because they've gone fishing. Now, we were very aware that there would be different views here, and we were entirely aware that sitting by the side of a river or a lake or on a shoreline um, miles away from anyone else was in many ways safer than lots of other things you could do. But at the same time, we were also committed to the fact that there were those different areas of transmission. People didn't understand enough about the disease, the virus, sorry, and there were those points around how you got there, how you travel there, the, the all of the services you needed. So we went through that process. And then at the point, that point, it was particularly the full team. It was a team effort that you mentioned Martin earlier. Martin and myself started to work towards how do we come out of this proactively? And what we looked at was we looked at a couple of examples. Martin spent some time over in um, Australia and New Zealand. And um, my wife is uh, half Dutch. My mother-in-law's Dutch. And in Holland, what they've done is they've gone to each of the sports at the start and said, so they call it a six-foot plan, or, or 1.5 metres is what they use. 
And they'd effectively said, give us your 1.5 meter plan and turned it over to the sports to say, if you can apply by our guidance and our strict guidance, then we will either give you approval or not to participate. And so Martin and I made the decision, right, this is what we need to do for our sport. And what we need to do is we need to be in a position where we have got a watertight proposal to go back that if the guidance is as it is today in three weeks or six week time, because we'd had, we knew they were reviewing at three week intervals, that we could adhere to that on certain terms. And these are things we put in place. And then what our job was, was to ensure that MPs, ministers and the government were confident and comfortable with our proposals and comfortable enough that they could allow us to participate. So what we had to do at that layer of it was promote the the benefits of angling and the huge benefits to to physical health and mental well-being and the fact that we had statistics around the fact that I think I'm going to quote numbers here and I apologize if I get them wrong I'll, I have the participation team shouting at me if they listen to this but oh, I, I believe, do it all the time don't worry people will believe you it's the 97% of stats are made up Keith there we go yeah. um, <laughs> but I believe it's 64% of anglers in the National Angling Survey um, state that Fishing is the only type of physical exercise or physical or sport that they undertake. So actually, when you're looking at at solutions that get people out into the open outdoors, and there was a huge focus around the fact that you were safer outdoors than you were in confined spaces that have limited impact on uh, transgressing social distancing guidance um, and that engage people positively in their, their mental health and well-being as well as getting them physically active, we had a really good argument. And what we had to do was drive that argument home. So we we can have influence and in speaking to the departments we we were. But what was clear, and uh, and we were also working with the all-party parliamentary group for Anglic, um, who were fantastic, was that the decision-making process within government was coming through, through COBRA and through the Cabinet Office. So regardless of how much we were working with digital culture, media and sport who have been fantastic, Sport England who have been brilliant through this and have had a really tough time through this as well to to manage and unpick guidance for each with each and every sport and with DEFRA. Um, and we probably had less engagement with DEFRA because, because we were positioned as a sport, so that was our routine. But we had to run the, the When We Fish Again campaign, firstly to take anglers with us and show anglers something positive they could do, and secondly to make sure that the angling was seen as part of the solution, not part of the problem. And it was seen as a positive. And so we, where you've got the advantage with someone like Martin is he's done that job for 13 years. And when you're talking to someone like Martin who's done the job and you've got someone like Charles Walker, who's chair of the all-party parliamentary group for angling, their politics are poles apart, but they're both incredibly passionate constituency MPs. And when they're saying that actually they have spent the last four, five, six, seven weeks of lockdown, here, all they're hearing is stories of things like domestic violence and abuse, of, uh, of the challenges people are having in their lives, at not being able to get out and do things. They haven't had anything over that period, positive, proactive, or forward thinking to support. So when, when a series of their constituents start writing to them with a well-thought-out document that's been reviewed that could cite what other countries across Europe and the world had done and use some proper statistics and arguments around why fishing was was one of the safer um, activities to come back. All of a sudden, the MPs have got something positive that they can get behind. And so we had generally, I don't know how many times you've written to your MP, but however good your MP is, it's not that you don't often get a response very quickly. And it's not often from them directly. It's generally from someone within their office. We had the MPs themselves responding to people within 20 minutes of receiving the email saying, this is brilliant. Be delighted to support this and I'll send it to the Cabinet Office. Took and mine so, two and a half hours. So, yeah, hours. I agree. Two and a half hours, which is, which is unbelievable, as you say. You don't usually get a reply from, from the MP themselves. But I think that's, that's the point. Is we, we, Martin and I had that document ready to go three weeks before we, we launched it. Um, and as you know, Keith, because you supported it and you'd seen it develop and, and we had a, a series of anglers because we had to consult and get it right as well. So we had anglers from each of the disciplines. We had fishery owners. Um, we had uh, club representatives. We had competitions representatives. 
um, boat anglers, shore anglers. We tried to cover every discipline and really get buy-in and a, a sense of making sure that it was right. And there were some aspects in it that, that some turned their eyebrows up at and had a look at and, and questioned. There were some aspects that people suggested and said, look, this is my red line. I, this needs to be in there for me to support it. And and we reviewed and, and peer reviewed it. And actually, we ended up with a really strong document, I think, and something that, that we can be quite proud of individually and as a sport. And as testament to that, what when fishing was one of the the four sports permitted at that first line, Again, the CEO forum, the number of inquiries I had from other sports as to how did you do that? How did you go about it? How did you put this together? But at that point, obviously, the the government were only reviewing in three-week tranches and they had a plan laid out. So those other sports were in a position where they were slightly playing catch-up to the ones of us who, who had been permitted and then were having to try and follow that same basis. So really, I think it was ourselves and golf and I spoke to Jeremy on numerous occasions um, who runs the the British Golf Union. And we got very different sports, but we both felt that we could put something together that would mitigate the risk and that we were comfortable with. And so that's what we did. And I can't thank enough the anglers for, for getting behind us, um, for writing to their MPs, um, for, for watching and questioning the things like the Facebook Lives that I were doing, which are a bit of a a break from tradition with the trust, maybe. I, I, there may be slightly different. Martin had certainly never done a Facebook Live um, in his time. But we, but doing those things slightly differently, engaging in different ways, standing up and showing that that leadership that I think we're here to deliver. And whether people have agreed with everything we've done in the past or not, it's not really for me to say or judge. But I can, what I can do is try and drive us forward. And I felt that we had to stand up and be recognised. People were looking for someone to to offer that type of leadership and that guidance, offering their input to and get behind. And I think what it shows, Keith, is the fact that in my lifetime, and and I don't believe yours unless I, I've missed something, fishing's never been taken away from us. It's never no. been prohibited. And there are other sports out there that that are challenged and pastimes that 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 have challenges from from the antes that some look at fishing and say, well, we could have the same and we may have the same in the future. And and I think what this shows is if, if people are concerned about their fishing, uh, this is a physical manifestation of who do they turn to when fishing gets taken away and who can actually fight for them, fight for fishing, fight for for the sport that we all love at the level that we need to, to, to gain traction and, and gain representation. And I think that the Angling Trust really showed its worth at that point. And it, it, for me, it was something I was very proud of. And then receiving notes that I haven't been able to publish from from Sports England or from government um, representatives, shall we say, complimenting the campaign that we ran and talking about the level of influence that we'd had in doing so and, and the confidence we provided to them to to have fishing allowed. I wish I could publicise it because it, I think it would be that that third-party endorsement that maybe the trust has always needed for, for those naysayers who say, well, it would have happened anyway. Um, yeah. I, I can guarantee them it, there was an awful lot of work went in and it wouldn't. And there are a lot of sports looking on enviously at the point that, that we'd done what we'd done and got to where we got to. So, yeah, it, it, it's certainly not not what I expected the job to be at the start. Um, but I've learned a lot of skills through it. I think my team have come out of it stronger. I think they've come out of it with real confidence around what they're doing. And I think what showed in that, Keith, and it's the last time I saw you actually, albeit only briefly, was the the effort put in by our competitions team to to get competitions back up and running because we were the first sport of any sport to come back with competitive infrastructure because again we followed the same route delivered what are now called return to play guidance to the department of digital culture media and sport for review and on that basis we're permitted to start running competitions in late may um and no other sport was able to lots of them as we know are still coming back now um and I thank the competition anglers of all disciplines for that as well, because I know there was frustration. There's logical frustration that they had, and I could see that. And what I was trying to articulate to them and explain to them is that we're not dealing with day-to-day anglers who understand the difference between the discipline of a, a course or a game or a sea competition angler versus a pleasure angler. We're dealing with people who see competitions as a whole as being collections of mass gatherings or organized gatherings and 
the the fact that we were able to put in place guidance that mitigated a gathering really gave us strength. And the other area that I have to give um, thanks to through that was the the volunteers who who make up the the voluntary bailiff service and the enforcement service because it was their integration with with policing services that allowed us to have that dialogue to really understand how the police were enforcing these guidance. Because it's it's one thing to understand and interpret the guidance. It's another thing to actually take a step aside and be able to talk to the police about how what they perceive to be a gathering, where they see the gathering working, and have that 360-degree feedback put us in a really strong place. So, um, so yeah, actually, as it were, two of those areas of um, delivery that we have and, and that we work hard on really played into that. So, uh, so yeah, the, the summer of competition that we've had in fishing is has been fantastic and whether that's trust competitions or or some of the other big competitions that that are springing up and having success all over the country it's been fantastic to see and fishermania was a brilliant event and uh, and it was nice to see you there again it was nice to be there now we've had there's no doubt we've had a resurgence of angling rods rod license sales at one period went through the roof we'll only know at the end of the year how realistic the numbers will compare to last year, uh, but there's no doubt they're going to be up, um, rod licence sales. And, and tackle shops, and those that remained open doing online business did phenomenal online business, even when there was no fishing. Once it restarted, well, phenomenal compared to what they could have been doing, which is nothing. Once it started, it is just unbelievable. I've, I've seen some figures that I don't believe, um, but I've seen some, that the, and I've heard some people have told me that the the increase in their turnover and the fact that they're trying to buy almost anything to sell because anglers will buy almost anything at the moment that there there are just so many people new to the sport as well. How are we going to keep those new people in fishing because there are new people in fishing? That's our biggest challenge, I think, Keith. It's always, and my view has always been that the lapsed anglers are the ones that, even before this lockdown, lapsed anglers are ones we needed to target. And I've got a young family, and I know how challenging it is to fit everything between a career, a family, um, and and all of the other things that you need to do into daily life. And the the challenge we've got with with returning anglers or new anglers is ensuring that they're successful that they have a good time, that they enjoy being out in the bank and that we remind them that some of those who who may, I mean, I'm sitting looking at blue skies at the moment, but in a month or six weeks time, it might be completely different. Who maybe don't go out through the winter, that we, we get them back out in the spring. When the sun shines again, we remind them of why they had such a good time taking up fishing. And what we've been trying to do with, with initiatives like Fishing Buzz and working with a number of the trade, um, who have been fantastic, and I can't say enough for how how welcome I've been made by even those who have maybe been historic um, detractors from the trust. To a man and woman, everyone has made me feel welcome and and had time for me since coming into the sport, which gives me great hope for the future. But we've got to, as as an industry, make sure that that we make fishing accessible. We make sure that those anglers who have tried fishing come back and are successful again and we put in place interventions at the end of this year as our get fishing uh, scheme is doing and also into next year and the early part of next year so that people maintain that habit they don't go back to doing whatever it was they were doing before or not fishing and we, we keep them active and we keep them engaged and we keep them going out and enjoying their fishing and the role that we can play with the trade is to help them We've put together a, a website through lockdown um, that's linked to the Angling Trust site now and will hopefully transfer onto the Trust site soon um, called Fishing Buzz. And what we've done there is we've pulled all of the content that that our team have looked at. And our team are anglers, by and large. They're, they drive participation, they coach. And so they're watching this content and then uploading it onto this site so that for a new angler or a returning angler who... I mean, can you imagine if you if the last time you fished was maybe in the nineties and then you hadn't fished until today and you came came into a tackle <laughs> shop and had to work out what a method feeder and a spom were? Um, an unhooking mat. And, uh, yeah, why do I need an unhooking mat? And um, yeah, so it's it, the the sport chain has changed at such a rate. We need to help those people come back in because the more comfortable they are, 
the more successful they are, the more likely they are to maintain that fishing habit. And the work that we're doing with um, the Angling Improvement Fund and, um, and working with clubs and fisheries to, to try and find them further investment and signpost to it and help them leverage it so that they can improve their facilities and, and make it a comfortable environment to come to. I think they're all key, really simple attributes rather than doing anything really clever, Keith, that would just keep those people coming back. Because I don't know how many, when, how many um, it's sort of new anglers I've taken. Um, I've not done it as a profession, but every time I've taken a new angler, provided they've caught and they've, um, they've, then they've loved it and they've wanted to go back and they wanted to find a way to get back out fishing. So that's what we need to do. I see lots of that when I'm I'm volunteering at uh, at my charity at Get Hooks on Fishing. That you know you see the the wonder and mystery. Even people that aren't fishing. I mean, our, our facility down here in London is in a public park. So when we're doing have a go sessions or when we've got some some school sessions going on, the, the, the people that stop and, and don't believe we're catching fish for a start, and then ask the questions and especially the youngsters, they get really, really into it and really interested and, and all sorts of different ethnicities as well, because we're based, the, the, our, our London charity is, is in, in Northolt in Ealing. Mm. And it is a very, very multi-ethnic area and, and people of all kinds. I mean, one, I, can't, I, I think one session I did once, I, I was doing a, a, a demo if you like, for want of a better thing, a, a tips area. And I had nine different ethnicities standing around me asking me about fishing. And the young people, the, 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 the grandmothers were involved as well, and they had no English. And the young people were translating to the grandmothers and grandfathers what we were actually doing and, and helping each other out. And the teamwork was just incredible. And, and I think we're going to see that amongst these new anglers and, and some returners, we're going to see people that wouldn't customarily be anglers, that they wouldn't be uh, – angling isn't in their culture like it is in our culture and in Eastern European culture where it's massive. It's bigger in Poland and Romania and, and places like that. It is here. So it, it's, it's, it's wonderful to see that kind of integration in fishing. Now, the, the obvious question is why should anglers of all disciplines join the Angling Trust? And I'll tell you a true fact now. I didn't join the NFA as an individual angler. I joined the Angling Trust by default through the Anglers Conservation Association, because I believed that that was where angling needed fighting for, whereas the National Federation of Anglers was a group that ran matches. And it was a club thing, and I was a member through a club, and I, I fished national championships. That was what I loved to do. And national championships were a team event, and they said, well, you've got to be an individual member as well as a team member. I didn't join because I didn't want to be blackmailed into joining to fish a national that had always been a team event and was paid for substantially by the clubs that, 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 that fished the national. Now, the Anglers Conservation Association, I could never not be a member of. And, and now that's sort of morphed a bit into fish legal, but the Angling Trust is doing a lot of what the old ACA used to do. And, and, even if it's only for that, never mind the fact that of the, the individual competitions and the, the huge money competitions that the Angling Trust now organises, that there's got to be no reason not to join. It's interesting, Keith. There's a, so I did my research on this before I applied for the job. And if you go and participate in other sports, the majority of other sports, quite often or, or certainly the majority of sports, you have to be affiliated to whatever it is, the representative body or the governing body, however you describe it, in order to participate. So to give an example, and there'll be lots of people listening to this saying, no, you don't. Where if you take golf as an example we used earlier, when you go and pay, even if you just show up and play at your local course, a proportion of your green fee goes to the, the regional or national golf union, and that covers things like insurance and whatever else. Um, in fishing, we don't have that. I mean, we're, we're licensed, which is unlike virtually any other sport. And we, by and large, adhere to that license as well. So we buy licenses and that goes into the Environment Agency. Now, the Angling Trust deliver a couple of interventions 
for the environment agency under contract. So we work on participation initiatives. We work to support their enforcement services as best we can through volunteers. Um, and we work around things like biosecurity, um, really just some some key areas that we deliver for them. The difference for, for listeners and why they should join the Angling Trust, and you touched on the ACA there, is if you take the work of the ACA, that really is now split between the Angling Trust and Fish Legal. And the ACA, and my dad was a member of the ACA, it's, it, it was so simple. It made absolute sense. And you looked at it and say, I can get behind that. That's, that's one really clear thing that, that we can all agree on. And I know Viv from the National Lime Recyclers Scheme uses that line, thinks something all anglers can agree on, and there aren't many of them. Um, but that was one. It was the ACA that people could get behind. And with the merger of the, the eight or nine different stakeholders into the Angling Trust and Fish Legal, lots of those brands were swallowed up and became different. And so the challenge we've had, Keith, is that you've got ang- competition anglers like yourself who, who can look back to those NFA days and actually say, well, and they do say, well, look, I don't want to join because I, I'm not interested in the campaign or the pollution side. I only fish commercial waters. Why should I care? I just want to fish matches. Um, and you've got other anglers who say, well, actually, all I'm interested in is that you fight for fish and fishing and hold polluters to account. I don't want my money going towards competitions. So I think for for me, we need to simplify the message. The key message is that to represent anglers properly, we need a single unified voice. We fight on a number of fronts. The work that the ACA did has never gone away. It's just been named in a different way. And we need to make more of that. It's a huge reputational asset that carries an awful lot of, of sway. And we make a real difference. No other sport has got something with the teeth that fish legal hats to hold polluters to account. And those that look at us, I mean, you've, the ACA have taken the Environment Agency to judicial review. It's not as if we're in their pockets and we don't criticise them. We can't go much further than that in that respect. They're challenging NRW around phosphates in the Y at the moment. And we talked about the ranunculus in the Kennet. The Y is a crying shame at the moment. And we, we can see the cause. And it's only through the work of Fish Legal that we can actually have teeth. And from the Angling Trust perspective, we need that ability that if the sport is challenged, if the sport is threatened, if people care about the... F- because it, someone described it very well to me as the fish being the dividend of the environment that they live in. And all of us fish in different environments and be that in the sea, be that in rivers, be that in lakes, uh, of whatever style of fishing that we do, we have to fight for fish and fishing to represent the view so that our environments are, are protected and improved rather than decimated as they are being at the moment, as recent reports have shown. And that, that fish stocks... It, grow and develop so that the environment that anglers go into is a pleasant environment to be in with a huge, with the number of fishing that people want to catch so if people believe in those things the only tangible organization that can make a difference to drive those things through is the angling trust we represent anglers of all denominations and i have a particular focus on a couple of areas i i I've been really, really pleased through the period that i've been here that that i've had some input from some really experienced knowledgeable sea anglers and i'm looking forward to working with them to ensure that that we do maybe a little more than we have in the past to to represent the interest there and when you look at something like the the fisheries bill and the what the hours that we've put into that to drive recreational angling for the first time hopefully being recognized as a stakeholder and that oh, sorry, my, my sea fishing newsletter from the Angling Trust today, I saw just that. I haven't had time to read it yet, but I saw it came through. And, and, and the fisheries bill is going to be critical. It'll be a, it, it'll be a game changer, Keith, and it will mm. mean that, that we are a legitimate stakeholder for the first time. So that where we've had challenges around the interest of the commercials outweighing ours, we will have a seat at the table and a voice. And the Angling Trust will be championing championing those causes that are key to to recreational sea anglers and that's something that will really take forward and drive but the challenge for us is that is resource is because we are by and large a membership organization and what the the key point to come back to your question in a short slightly more succinct way is anglers say to me and i heard it said so many times if you do this i'll join you 
<laughs> work like that. It's we. I I am held to account by my members. We are an individual membership organisation. So if you want to drive change, join the Angling Trust. Tell me what I need to do. Tell my team what we need to see. That can be a regional grassroots level that only applies to a community, or it can be a bigger, a bigger national or international issue that needs to be fought on. And we have the scope and ability to do that and to campaign and fight at those different levels to deliver those participation initiatives so that we have a sport for the future and to ensure that that those polluters, that those who are supposed to be monitoring and representing fisheries and have the power to make them stronger and better actually have something with some teeth to make them get the job done. And finally, Keith, it's the fact that if we love our fishing and want to continue fishing, whether some of those that have been members for years want to put something back and believe it's the right thing to do. Others simply want to go fishing. And we've seen that fishing can be taken away. And if that's a risk in the future, be that short term or longer term, I think we just all have to be honest and look at who we turn to at that point when fishing was taken away. And if we want that to want to mitigate that in the future, I'd, I'd really encourage people to, to give the Angling Trust a chance, give it another look if they looked in the past. And, and give me that support, but but do so in a way that you hold me to account as well for, for the things that you're joining for. I don't think there's any doubt that people will do that, especially anglers. <laughs> now, right, it's been fascinating talking to you, Jamie, and I'd like to just go back to fishing now because the obvious, I always ask, I try to always ask um, my guests on the strange boat, my crew on the strange boat, what um, tip they would like to give anglers. Now, we've got, the obvious one is join the Angling Trust. That's a given. You can have that like the things you get on Desert Island Discs as, as something that comes with it. Um, what What... If, if you could give, an, a, especially someone that's just joined our sport or, or rejoined our sport, one tip that's going to improve their enjoyment of angling, what would it be? I'll give you two, if that's okay, Keith. You carry I'll on. give you one fishing one. And the fishing Bible one in the works be, of Shakespeare. There we go. <laughs> My fishing one would be watch the water um, and always watch the water. And you just by it's mesmerizing doing so but the more you watch the water whether it's still water or running water or whether you're looking at the sea you just learn things you gain experience and it's that old art of watercraft but it comes from just being tuned in to what the water's doing and the subtle signs that you'll see the way that the fish will give themselves away or the things that you'll learn just keep your eyes on the water any moment possible use the opportunity to put your iphone down and and just watch that water and you'll be amazed at the clues that will give you for catching fish. And the second piece would be a separate one, is that the whole idea of fishing is it's fun. It's something that we enjoy. So take a friend fishing. And that's the initiative we're running at the moment is take someone with you and share that gift. And as my dad did for me and, and you did with your friends, Keith, growing up, is, is take someone and socialise and enjoy it and compare results because you'll learn twice as quickly, you'll have a good time, you'll, you'll exchange notes and you'll have that companionship and camaraderie that fishing brings. And that will develop into you building a network of people around you in your local area, you'll get to know more and you'll make friends for life. And some of the best friends I've got, uh, friends I've had through fishing. Um, so it develops relationships, it's good for us. And they'd be my two tips, watch the water and take a friend fishing. Marvellous. I think that they're, they're both wonderful things. I, I went to the seaside um, two days ago at Westcliff, South End on Sea, and I was trying to point out to my aunt, who's even older than me, look at those mullet. Look, there are people swimming and the mullet are right next to them. And they don't know the big mullet as well. They were, And they don't know they're there watching the water. What a great tip that is. Jamie, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Um, it's not often that the guest gets to say more words than me, but you've done it. You've achieved the unachievable. So brilliant for that. Thank you so much for joining me. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again in the near future when we'll have lots more to discuss. Incidentally, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the radio show on Sunday for a change. Nigel's on holiday. And I've got Stuart Singleton-White coming on to talk about the disgrace that is the uh, state of our rivers and still waters at the moment. So uh, we, we didn't go into that today because it would have been another hour. But, uh, yes, keep doing what you're doing, mate. You're doing a wonderful job, and I can't wait until we get out together. And now that the uh, winter's coming, hopefully it will be for days. 
Yeah, that would be brilliant, Keith. Well, I'll, I'll look forward to that. And thanks for inviting me on. And the same to you. I think uh, keep doing what you're doing. We love to uh, we love to hear your voice on the radio or on the TV. So um, so good luck with the new venture. I hope it goes well. Cheers, Jamie. I'll speak to you soon. All the best. to Jamie Cook for joining us aboard this edition of The Strange Boat. Please don't forget to rate, like and follow or subscribe to the podcast and join us for our next journey on The Strange Boat. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.